Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover Book 4 of The Dark Tower, Wizard in Glass, Part 2, Susan. Chapters 1 through 5. Let's start the show. In this section, Stephen King challenges your fellow podcasters' pronunciation skills with a bunch of characters and places with potentially difficult names. Plot-wise, we start with Rhea of Coos, a witch who has been given a box containing a glowing orb by three men called the Big Coffin Hunters. We then meet Roland's love, Susan Delgado, who is meeting Rhea to be examined to prove her honesty. She has been promised to the mayor of Mahis by her aunt. After an uncomfortable scene that leaves Susan with some sort of post-hypnotic suggestion by Rhea, Susan meets Roland on her way back to town. Roland, traveling under the name Will Dearborn, is smitten with Susan and she with him. Roland and his companions, Elaine and Cuthbert, have been sent to Mahis under cover of punishment to do some accounting for the affiliation, a group opposed to John Farson, a good man, leading a rebellion. Roland and his friends meet with the sheriff of Mihis, Herc Avery and his deputies, while elsewhere Jonas, the leader of the Big Coffin Hunters, is concerned about the presence of the three young men in town. The chapter ends with a tense reception at the mayor's house, where everyone seems to be talking on multiple levels as they withhold information from each other. The one piece that comes out is Susan's engagement to the mayor, which Roland is upset about and eventually confronts her about during a dance. Phew, there's a lot happening in these five chapters, Jay. Yeah, I feel like more happened in these five chapters of this one section than happened like all of book two, at least plot wise. Like, <laughs> it's just like so, so many characters, so many things happen. <laughs> like, this town is just full of people. And this is the first time we've, even when, even in book one, when the gunslinger came into Tull, there were a lot of people, but it felt like it was smaller and fewer people than are in Mahis. Mahis? See, that's one of the things. We got to figure out how do we say all these places, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> these names. Mahis? Mahis. It, it's a lot. It, yeah, there's a ton of people. As you said, in the first book, we basically get Roland, the man in black, the guy on the outskirts of town, and then a few people in Tull. But that's really it. Um, Jake, of course. Book two. How can you forget Jake? Well, Jake, of course. Book two, Eddie, Odetta, Roland, and occasionally some of the other characters, but never for more than a couple of scenes. Don't forget the Lobstrosity Chorus. Oh, the Lobstrosity Chorus, of course. Dada Chuck. Dada Chuck. Dada Chim. But here we have, not only do we have a lot of named characters, but we're starting to get motivations from a lot of them too. So it's not just tracking who are these people, but what are they doing? What are they what is their motivation? How do they relate to to Roland? How do they relate to the bigger story? Um that's what for me as I was going through these pages, it was just a new piece of the Dark Tower mythos that I had to to wrestle with. Because not only are there all these characters, but then we're also thrown back in time and what's the whole story and there's a rebellion going on. So just a ton going on here, which led to my longer than usual plot summary for these first five chapters. I can only imagine um, 
Eddie and Jake and Susanna sitting on the around the campfire going, wait a minute, who's this now, Roland? Wait, what were, who was that? And what were they doing? And, and how do you pronounce that name? <laughs> and why is this important to get into the Dark Tower exactly, Roland? Like, I understand you want to tell us this story, but what, what's the point? Uh, but we'll get that. Oh, and it also doesn't help that Roland Cuthbert and Elaine are all traveling under f- false names too. So then you have to keep track of Will Dearborn and the other guys. Luckily, they, they didn't carry that through too much because I would have been lost for good. Yeah, it's like crime and punishment, like all the Russian nicknames. You can't, <laughs> like, you have no idea. Like, every character has 15 names, and it all depends on who's talking about them, or who's thinking about them, or who's referring to them. It's like, what's going on here? By the time I figured out who all the names were, I was at the end of the book. <laughs> well, you just need a longer book like War and Peace, then, instead of Crime and Punishment. Yeah. <laughs> There you go. So having said all that, I was in very engaged with these chapters and kept flipping the pages to see what it would happen next. Um, I'm not sure where it's all going to lead, but I was very um, entranced by the story and and if not on the edge of my seat, at least interested in what was going to happen next. So I thought that you that were was comfortably good. settled in it. Com- comfortably settled and had a warm, snug feeling as all of these characters surrounded me. <laughs> And it's a lot easier reading it because you don't have to worry about the pronunciation of the names. Right. (laughs) So, Sean, one of the first things that when we first meet Susan, she's humming a song to herself, Careless Love. And King gives us some lyrics to the song. And this is a song that, you know, this is a real song in our world. Mm -hmm. And when we compared the lyrics of the song that Susan is singing, um, it doesn't quite match up. but that I think that works. You know, it 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 matches the the mythology that we're living with here. That uh, there are echoes. So maybe there's a song with the same name. Maybe it's got the same melody, but it's you know different lyrics. Yeah, because... which isn't that uncommon. I mean, even in our world, I think there's a few different versions of that song that has slightly different lyrics. So I would I would yeah. buy that. Yeah, may, maybe it's the dubstep remix of <laughs> Careless Love. <laughs> But it made me ask the question, because we are on this dark country road with Susan when she encounters Will Dearborn, and they fall in love with each other in the course of just riding down that road together. Do you think it's realistic that that would happen, that these two people who don't even have enough starlight or moonlight to clearly see each other's features, let alone enough time to get to know much about each other. Is it realistic for them to fall in love that quickly? And do you think King's doing a good job of of like guiding us through this process? So even in my cold, logical heart, and you would expect me to say no, I'm going to answer yes to both your questions. I think that it is A, realistic that these two could fall in love in this short meeting. And also, I think that Stephen King does a good job with this. Um, I think he he lays this groundwork much better than he did with the other love story we've seen so far, which is Eddie and Susanna, or yeah. it was Eddie and Odetta at the time, but you know Eddie and Susanna. I think he's done a much better job of showing how both Roland is falling in love with Susan and vice versa. Primarily, and I'm not sure if this is the entire reason why, but 
they're both so young. They're what, 14 and 15? Yeah. Around and there. I think that has a lot to do with it. Like it does have this feeling of new relationship or new love. And um, I used the word smitten before in my recap, and that was mostly intentional because you do have, when you're that young, these feelings just well up in you quickly um, based on glances and looks and a slight touch. And so I could see this happening with the two of them, um, especially based on their situations where Susan has just come from a very traumatic experience where she was basically sexually abused by this witch, Rhea. Mm-hmm. And there's this stranger from outside of town who she's never seen before, who is very courtly and gentleman-like to her. He's also mysterious. I think yes. that also that always adds mystique and appeal to a person. When they are mysterious, when they're new and unfamiliar, that is almost an automatic like boost to their appeal. Even though it kind of doesn't, it usually spells disaster for people because you're like, well, you don't know them. You know nothing about them yet you're drawn to them and then you find out who they really are later and then you know you have to sometimes suffer those consequences but you're right not only is Roland a stranger and 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 mysterious and and new he is also perfectly gentlemanly mm. he does everything right he says everything right and even though they can't see each other well because it's a dark night there's enough light for them to see like oh that Roland is, you know, he moves gracefully. Yep. And and he can see the same thing of Susan and they can see the general shape of each other's forms and stuff like that. Maybe there's just enough. And even the even the fact that they are in like poorly lit situation, maybe that would make it even easier to be appealing because it's like it's you know, there isn't enough light to see perhaps the flaws that you might have. Sure. Although we learn later that when they finally do see each other in good lighting that they're both even more attractive <laughs> to the other person than they ever imagined. Um, but of course they are. This is a, <laughs> this is a story like Romeo and Juliet that probably is going to end in, tra- tra- in tragedy. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it started off like Romeo and Juliet, but ended in tragedy. Um, you know, to that point, I mean, uh, there's even a, you know, Romeo and Juliet were star crossed lovers and there's a shooting star that goes overhead. Um, mm-hmm. when these two meet. In addition to Susan falling for Roland pretty quick, I think Roland falling for Susan is understandable as well. We have not seen young Roland really with any other woman besides the prostitute he beds after gaining his guns with the Battle of Court. The only other Yeah, and I think we get the impression that there have been no other No, women. right. I, yeah, and I would imagine that the only woman that we've seen in his life is his mother. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he sees the women when he's sitting on the balcony during the dances that they have in the Great Hall, but there's no instance of him with them or seeing them as other than just sort of the gunslinger's wives. Um, Roland is not an experienced man. When you're a 14-year-old boy or boy about to become a man, I think it's very easy for you to fall in love in a very infatuated way, which it seems like Roland is doing. Yeah. yeah. Even though his society officially deems him an adult because he has not only reached the, the age of, of adulthood, he's passed the test of the gunslinger yeah. challenge, and he's also um, had sex with a prostitute. So he has, he's checked all the boxes 
of being an adult, but he hasn't yet lived long enough to actually occupy the space. And so, I mean, he's 14. There's only, no matter how good he is with guns now, and even though he beat court in his challenge for to be a gunslinger, he still only has 14 years of life experience. Yep. That's just not a lot. No. And to your second point, I do think that King's done a good job here. I mean, I find it very believable within these pages that yeah, th- that this could happen and that this happened the way it does. Uh, again, we know that Roland is the one telling this story, so in some senses he's an unreliable narrator. But, um, but King gives us Susan's perspective. Yes, we we know her thoughts directly in the scene, and so we get to, I guess, in a sense, surreptitiously know what both of these people are thinking and feeling as these events are happening. And um, so we know that every time something sparks Roland's interest, we know that it, that's happening and, and, and likewise for, yeah. for Susan. And so they might not be trying to be appealing to each other, but they are both appealing people in many ways. And the timing was perfect for this to happen. So Right. And I think yeah, that, I, I think that's I a good agree. point. The fact that you said that we're in Susan's head as well. I think that's something that was missing from the earlier books. You know. Oh, you mean uh, time with uh, knowing what Odetta and and Su- <laughs> and uh, Susanna's thoughts were. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I hadn't picked up on that. Um, but but you know even even in the first book when Roland sleeps with the barmaid in Tall. We mm-hmm. we don't get a lot from her perspective. It's all from Roland's perspective. So, um, so I think that that probably adds to why seeing both sides of the story, we could see how they fall in love, and it just makes more sense. These are two young people in, you know, if not a totally similar society, they do have a, more of a shared background than Eddie and Susanna do for sure. Um, you know, and, and being younger, I think is part of it. The, the Eddie and Susanna thing, I still haven't. I, I I don't think it was earned as much as this seems earned. Yeah, I agree with you. I think King did a, a very good job of of leading us to this conclusion that these two young characters actually have fallen in love with each other, and that goes a long way towards establishing the motivations of like why Roland gets so angry at the dance. Yes, because if he had no skin in the game with Susan at all, if he truly had just met her ten minutes ago. He wouldn't have thought any of those things. He wouldn't have been the least bit angry. He would have just probably just dismissed her. Like, ah, that's just what I figured, you know, people in this little town would do. Whatever, you know, and that'd be that. But no, he had an opportunity to fall in love with her on this (laughs) this, uh, country road. And and on my rereading, too, I realize he's learning a lot of information, too. Ahead of time, oh, yeah. so we're gonna get we're gonna get a little bit into the what their mission is, but the fact that Roland and company are there to really get a sense of what's happening in this province that's so far out from from Gilead and some of the inner cities is to really learn what's going on here, what's happening, and he's asking a lot of questions that Susan's immediately able to answer, and he knows that she's a trusted source right away. Mm-hmm. Um, that she, unlike everybody else in town, isn't hiding something. At yeah. least, at least not about that. She is hiding something else, but that's not what he's. Yeah, one find. of my favorite lines of the chapter was Roland reflects that in Hambry, 
the waters on top and the waters down below seem to run in different directions. (laughs) I thought that was a wonderful way of expressing how everybody's saying one thing, but they're thinking something else entirely. Yes, indeed. Oh, and there was another thing that I thought was kind of special about this interaction with Susan and Roland. When Susan takes out this partially eaten cookie and feeds it to Roland's horse, (laughs) that's, that's a... Aside from like the the very nice sign of affection and love of animals that we get to her, it makes her even more appealing to us as readers, and of course, to Roland as well. She reflects in that moment that she ate the first half of the cookie in the first half of her life, mm-hmm. and that now is the other half of her life. That the events of that evening, mainly I think her interaction with Rhea, and then later her meeting of Roland on the road is such an important and significant thing to her life that it feels like this is a major milestone and it just really it stands out to her and it and it's easy for us to see like in real life we don't generally notice these things as they happen right we can look back and say that was a pivotal moment in my life things changed for me from that point forward but as they happen looking at half of a cookie you know it's like <laughs> Wow, you know, when I when I started eating this cookie, I was a different person. That's um but I think she's right and I think that her self-awareness here isn't out of line. I think that this is a pivotal moment in her life and she realizes it. Yes. So I want to transition a little bit into one of the other new pieces of information that we have here and that is the fact that when I've been on Dark Tower message boards or interacted with Dark Tower fans, whether through email or Twitter or even listened to um, one or two other podcasts, a big piece is all the language and courtesy and customs around um, the Dark Tower. And this is where we're really seeing it spelled out for the first time with the thank you sigh and long days and pleasant nights and yeah. you know the 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 throat tapping and all the the we got our first taste with the uh, river crossing and the ver- and the ancient people there yeah but here's where it's really laid out and i i think part of it is it's spelled out for us because even though we're in the same time period and, and using the same language there's this rural and urban divide between the highborn um, gunslingers who have come from Gilead, which is sort of the the capital, and this mm-hmm. outer reaches of the civilized land where these people are ranchers and farmers and sheriffs on the outskirts. And for them, it's like, whoa, look at the guy from the big city coming in. Just, you know, similar to what we might see in, in parts of the country or the world where somebody from, you know, New York meets somebody from Alabama or something and says, wow, we can really see the difference between the two of us. And so not only do we hear it, but we get it explained to us a little bit more because, oh, Susan says, look at how he's acting and he's he's noticing how the sheriff acts and the sheriff's mm-hmm. noticing how they act. So it gets spelled out a little bit more for us too. Yeah. And I, I thought that even though we kind of get the perspective that Roland being from Gilead, it's like, it's a place with more wealth and maybe they have more of the older technology still functions and therefore... It's a place where the the world has moved on, but maybe it hasn't moved on as far mm. or as much as maybe in a in an outer barony like Mehis. But Susan thinks of Roland's use of certain terms as archaic, as though her way of talking is more modern. Right. And whereas Roland maybe thinks like, oh, you're just 
that's just like a, maybe a more rural way of talking. So it's not it's not necessarily just like city versus country. It's like old versus new, even. Yes. Yeah. That 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 the formality almost of it is the is the is the key difference there, and the yeah. fact that hey, we're more modern and 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 newer in our language because it's the the vernacular versus what you guys are are speaking. So mm-hmm. um, we also see a lot more of. You know, when when we're in book one, Roland is obviously older, 20, 20 or so years older than he is here, right? If and or or perhaps a thousand, or years perhaps over. a thousand, yeah, who knows? Yeah. But but at the, but at the very least, we see more of hey, there's actual pumps working out in the fields, um, yep. oil pumps, and like we're we're not able to process it, but hey, we can pump oil out of the ground, and people remember a time when you could do those things. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, oh yeah, we remember the old such and such station and, oh yeah, there, there's a refrigerator in town. We've got ice, but we yep. don't have a stove anymore, you know? So the world has moved on, but it hasn't quite gone quite as far. And it's odd too, because even though we're closer to when the world may have started moving on, it's moved on again, right? So there, there's ranchers and farmers who have started to crossbreed again, the animals to get from Hey, we used to have a lot more mutants being born, right? But now we're able to create this threaded stock because you know, instead of instead of it being one out of five was uh, was good, we now are up to a fact where hey, four of our four out of five of our horses are okay, and we can do right. stuff with. Yeah, and I think that makes that spells a difference. It's this positive movement of recovery for the world, and you feel like we know that from yeah from book one, which happens in the much later in time this like it seems like the world just continues to degrade yes like like moving on just is a is just not stopping but it feels like there was whatever the major cataclysm that turned roland's world into this post-apocalyptic place that caused all the mutation that killed most of the people and most of the animals and we we don't know what that was exactly but the world that that happened so long ago that it's actually starting to heal like the, yep. n- nature is is correcting itself and we get a little bit of that too like when that the scene when blaine goes supersonic through the countryside and blows the deer right and blow, and like just rips everything apart and the deer has like one mutant leg Flop, just hanging yeah. limp all, flopping off of its side and and we get that that uh you know omniscient narrator at the moment when we so we get the you know the perspective of the deer for a moment and it's like oh and the deer actually had healthy um you know healthy babies that yes. that season and now she's taking a sip of water in the stream and then blam <laughs> there goes blame you know, yep blame goes by and <laughs> she gets ripped to shreds <laughs> all right so all that is to set up what is really a lot of politics that are happening in this section so um, as That's I right. as I alluded to in our recap at the beginning, you know, there's the politics of why Roland and, and his quartet were sent out here. There's the politics of how does the sheriff deal with these new people in town? Where do the big coffin hunters fit in? What's the mayor's role? What's his wife's role? What's his sister's role? Like all of these politics going on and on and on, and it's it takes up a lot of this, and it's not difficult to follow. You could you could start to piece it together. And there's this sort of bigger piece too of why is the world like this way? Who are the affiliation? Who's the good man? 
and and what's going mm-hmm. on here. So I I imagine you have some thoughts on politics, Jay. All this politics talk makes me think of one of my favorite movies, Mel Brooks's History of the World Part One, <laughs> when Mel Brooks is the stand-up philosopher and he's trying to impress the the emperor, and he's like. Politics, politics, politics. <laughs> the Roman Senate is the best legislature that money can buy. Corruption starts in the streets with the little peddlers. They bribe an assemblyman. The assemblyman bribes a councilman. The councilman bribes a senator. And the senator, it goes all the way up to the emperor. Shit. <laughs> that movie is entirely quotable. Yes. And I love every minute of it. My wife introduced my daughter to the joys of Monty Python this week too. So ah. uh, Mel Brooks won't be far behind, I'm sure. Very good. Let me know when she gets the history of the world. <laughs> Will do. But yeah, there are a lot of things going on here. Uh, one of the more interesting things is how I kind of saw how King in a way subverts the good guys, bad guys, typical uh, arrangement here, the elemental good versus the political good. I think mm. he's he's switching these things around on us. Because the good man, as Farson is called, is a hint that, you know, maybe he's he's actually something, he represents something better for the people. And in a way, if you look at what he outwardly ascribes to or what his goals are, is to make things more democratic or even maybe, because um, right now, the world seems to revolve around a hierarchical barren king type of thing. Like there's still talk of the ancestors of Arthur Eld and we have this I forget what what's the political term for this type of structure like fiefdom. Yeah, like a fiefdom. Yep. That's exactly it. And and so and this is this is generally not good for the common person. Right. And it only benefits the powerful and the the nobility, if you will. And Roland is very much part of that, and most of the world seems to still be okay with this structure, but Farson represents a more democratic way of of living, maybe making you know giving more people more rights and doing away with this monarchic type of um, civilization yeah and so from our perspective of modern day Western civilization, we look at that and that should appeal to us. We should say. Sounds like Farson's got the right thing. Right. He's like, you know, he's the Bernie Sanders of his day, right? <laughs> um, he wants everybody to have a better life. But we've always had the perspective of Roland is our protagonist. Roland's our hero. He's mm-hmm. the he represents what is good in the world. He is an agent of the white. You know, he defends the tower and all this stuff. So if Roland represents the old way that keeps people down, but the bad guy in the story represents a better way for everybody. I, it's an interesting conflict that King weaves in here. Yeah, it, it it reminds me a little bit of Star Wars in the original trilogy. When you watch the Jedi are down to you know one or two people, they're very mm-hmm. much the underdogs. They're fighting the big brutal empire, but in the prequels trilogy. You know, the Jedis are basically sitting in their ivory tower and just, you know, controlling the land. And you could sort of see why, hey, wait a minute, this doesn't seem right that a bunch of people with their their super cool light swords and 
and powers are controlling us, you could see why there might have been some subversion and, and fight against that. And this is the first time in these books where you get that sense like, oh, Roland here represents the status quo. Roland here represents the, not the underdog, but the the people in power with the best weapons and all the stuff. And it's the little man mm-hmm. who's hurting because of that. So yeah, it does seem like a subversion in some way. And again, we haven't actually seen John Farson yet to know if he truly is that way. You know, King's done this before where even in the dead zone, the presidential candidate is a very much Martin a- Martin Sheen. Martin Sheen's character in the movie. Yeah. He's very much a populist type of candidate and appealing to, you know, the people and it's only when Johnny Smith touches him and realizes, hey, wait a minute, this guy's not all he seems. And so I would imagine that at some point we'll probably see that in Farson or or see what that turns and maybe get a different perspective. John Smith portrayed by the voice of Blaine. <laughs> Christopher, Christopher Walken. Walken. Yes, that is true. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, it, it, But we even start to get a little bit of that undercurrent because there's a lot of different thoughts on what the good man is and you know, everyone... Up, like you said before, on the top level of the water saying, oh, yeah, we don't trust that Farson, but um, underneath there might be more to it, I think. Yep. So Roland's here because he's been given a mission by his father. Um, Stephen DeShane wants Roland out of town because he realizes that Martin is going to do his best to get rid of Roland in one way or the other. His hope was that court would defeat him and he would be exiled. Um mm-hmm. But now Roland's father says, hey, you're going to be in danger here, so I'm going to send you away. And the mission that he's under is under the guise of, oh, these boys are being punished, so we're sending them on this lousy mission out to the outskirts of town where they can't get into trouble and they've got to be on their best behavior. And and so that's the cover story they're under. Um, but really, they're trying to find out what's exactly going on out here. Are there any goods and services and resources that we can use in the upcoming fight? against the good man. And you noted that really this is great that Roland and his father are sharing a ton of information for the first time. (laughs) You know, we ended the last part with Roland finding out that his father had known for two years that his wife was having an affair and he was six words. Yes. Um, But now it's like, hey, let's share everything that we know and 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 you'll learn everything. And this seems to be very important. Yeah. And I really appreciated the fact that Stephen DeShane actually just comes out and explains all of this to Roland. He tells Roland what seems like everything he knows. Yeah. He gives him the background. He gives him the, the you know, current events. He tells him his plans and he w- helps Roland to become part of those plans, even if it is just to keep him safe by sending him far away. And I'm also glad that King didn't structure this in a way that the plot that of this story doesn't hang on Roland's ignorance. No. I think if if Roland's father had sent him away and said, look, I'm going to send you away to keep you safe and I'm not going to tell you anything, yep. just stay away, then the whole thing is Roland wondering what's going on. He's got to sneak back, figure it out the hard way, and then save the day because, you know, but he got into more trouble than he needed to. This way, he's actually doing something very deliberate and in a, what seems like, you know, a smart way. Yes. And th- that's that's what I would expect, you know, like maybe get some new clothes and some new shoes and stuff when you go through Topeka, you know, <laughs> yeah, like do right. something smart. <laughs> yeah, because that's really the best type of entertainment is when smart people are doing smart things. Yeah. And all the characters here, um, if not necessarily smart, because you don't get the sense that the mayor's the, the swiftest one of the bunch or that the big coffin hunters are, 
they're at least smart enough to know what information to hold tight to their chest and what concerns to have about people. So even though the big coffin hunters and Jonas say, these are just three young boys, we shouldn't be worried about them. Jonas is at least enough to know, but we have to think through why are they here and what can we do about it? Because there might be something more to this. So even if they're not all knowing, they're at least smart enough to know, hey, there's something more going on here. And that's what makes the book exciting and tense and interesting to read about because all these people do have different motivations and you're aware of them and they're aware of them and they're able to act on those in a way that makes sense with their their logical consistencies of these characters. Right. And and just like with the, the waters flowing in different directions, I think that most of these, at least the important people from Mahis, you know, like the mayor and his sister and the the ranchers and stuff who we meet, they might not come across as really formidable, uh, perhaps enemies, but I think that they're all faking it a little bit. Yes. They're all, they're all purposely seeming a bit more dull. More than dull they than they may be. Or more drunk than they are. Or more, hickish or like over yeah. the top and I'm a sheriff in the small town and I don't know about all you. Right. But Roland right. notices that like the, the sheriff is, he's got a big belly, but yeah. when he laughs, it doesn't shake. Right. <laughs> he's like, yep. this guy is 100% muscle, yep. you know, and, and I will remember that. Yep. And they're smart enough to realize, hey, even though these are three boys, they're three boys who have the proper papers that seem to be from important families. So mm-hmm. let's not keep them too close to town. Let's put them out close to where nobody else is, out by the thinny and out in this abandoned area so they're not too close to what we're doing. And yeah. let's keep Maybe our eyes on them. get bored and leave yeah. right away. And even, the, the, even right at the beginning, when Rhea notices that Susan has come early, Mm-hmm. And Susan's thinking to herself, I shouldn't stop singing because she'll wonder why I'm stopping singing. So I need to continue singing. And <laughs> But Rhea still notices things. And so they're, they're all these characters. It's just great to see this thinking. And it, it gets to that point that you and I have talked about before, which is so much of Roland, he's identified as a gunslinger, but so much of his ability to be formidable is not in actually handling the guns, but in handling the problems. And in this sense, we see him handling the politics and the the diplomacy that needs to happen for a gunslinger. It's not right. just about the guns, because he doesn't even have the guns on him. He's hidden them in his in his bed mm-hmm. sack. Um, and Susan notices that too. And, and I think Jonas or the sheriff notices it too, that a couple of times Roland has reached for his hip, but there's nothing there. Uh-huh. Everybody notices these things. And that's what's great to see and what keeps the book interesting. Sticking with the politics for a moment more, it made me kind of wonder like how do the gunslingers kind of fit into the everyday politics of the land? Like like you just kind of hinted at the idea that they are sort of uh peacekeepers or diplomats. Diplomats, right. And and we've talked about that a little bit in the past, but it's like are they are they part of that structure? Are they, you know, are they truly the emissaries of the government as as it were or are they soldiers who are trained to defend the, the tower? Like do all gunslingers know about the tower, its mythology, its importance? Is that why Roland is obsessed with it because he's been told about the tower, this myth- mythical thing that he has never laid eyes upon and doesn't know anybody who's mm-hmm. actually seen it in person? 
but he's still obsessed with it with every fiber of his being. Now, he might not be that way when he's 14 years old and on this mission to Mehis, but he knows about the tower. Yes. His father knows about the tower. So what is the gunslinger's allegiance? Is it the tower? And also, because of their position in society, they're the peacekeepers, they're the law, they're the, the diplomats, they're the government officials, or is it the other way around? Yeah, I mean, I think early in the chapter, we get the backstory with Roland, and he's talking about his father. His father doesn't seem to be that concerned about John Farson and the good man. And even, no. you know, the 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 farmers in town, even though they're playing a game, don't seem to be, yo, know, like, oh, yeah, these things come and go. There's always people who are uprising, and eventually it settles down. And I don't think Roland's father is very concerned about it. So I do think for him, the bigger piece is the tower and probably the just sort of the status quo, right? Like, hey, if we could trace our lineage back 27 generations, that's mm-hmm. that's what's important is keeping that going. There'll be a 28th generation, there'll be a 29th generation because of course there's been 27, why wouldn't there be? Right. They're not aware that anything bad bad could happen and that's where I think that that's why they're more they're, they're they do tend to be a little bit above all of that because really what they're doing is just sort of maintaining that status quo perhaps. Um and that's why it's all that more interesting that we see when Roland is the last of the gunslingers, how much things have changed and how, you know, he's really lost all of that. Yeah. That's why, you know, seeing this now, we see such a different side of what society was like and what Roland was like and what the expectations were. And to know now that all of that's gone and we don't know why it's all gone yet and how it fell apart. But I think part of this story will be that. But it's interesting that, you know, to see Roland now where some of those traditions still stay in place, like we saw in Rivers Crossing, but for the most part, it's all gone. All those things that they depended on, it's just poof. And saying that just made me think of, like, if you compare how he not only just enters and, and ingratiates himself into this town of, of Mahis, compared to how he does the same thing with Tull. Yeah. I think that's part of it. Like, between between Mahis and Tull, Roland has done what you just said. He's lost everything. Not only has he lost his family and his friends, but he's lost the society that gives his existence as a gunslinger its definition. Mm -hmm. And he's also lived all of those years of his life learning these really hard lessons. So never again will he come into town without his guns on his hips. Right. Right. Never again will he hesitate to use those guns. So... I think that if the the older Roland had come into Mahis, he would have tipped his hat to to Susan and just kept on going past her in, into town, ordered a cheeseburger at the bar, <laughs> yep, and he would have counted the uh, the Sitco pumps and then left. And maybe and maybe not, he would have killed everybody in town. <laughs> right? If they turned but, him the wrong way, I'm sure he would have. Yeah. Yes. So if he had attended that that formal dinner, he even says it. Like he was so angry at Susan when he realized his, her arrangement with the mayor that if he had had his guns on him, he might have just killed her. And I thought that was just like way overreacted, <laughs> way way a huge overreaction. And 
I'm glad that that didn't happen. That would have been really oh, right. damaging Horrible. to who Roland is, yeah. let alone killing a young woman who doesn't deserve no. to be murdered for such a thing. And that gets back to the infatuation we talked about earlier as well, right? Like when you're yeah. 14 and you lose a girlfriend, you're like, oh my God, my life is over. Woe is me. Mm-hmm. So I think part yep. of that plays it's into either, it. It's either love or, or hate, yes. right? There's, there's no... no uh, there's no middle ground. No middle ground, yeah. <laughs> oh, On that happy note, Jay, I think it's time to move to fun stuff. All right. <laughs> I love fun stuff. Fun stuff is good stuff. All right, my my first one is um, they're roaming into town. They hear "Hey Jude" on the piano, and when yeah. we get that aside with Jonas, one of the big coffin hunters in the bar in town, we see a piano player named Sheb. This is our friend Ooh. Sheb from Tall, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> I was like, there can't be that many Sheb piano players who know "Hey Jude." Can there be? Ooh. Well, I wonder I how. I wonder how he gets from uh, Mahis to Tall. Or if he does, but I that was that was the first thing I noticed. I'm like, hey, I know this guy. There were only a few characters in the first book, and he's one of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's one of the things that um, it's no longer a spoiler to really point out. But in King's rewrite of book one, he adds just a little bit of detail to make sure that it is clear that this is the same Sheb mm. that Roland does remember him, and that Sheb kind of remembers Roland. We don't yet know the extent of their interaction here in Mahis, but clearly Sheb and Roland live beyond this story and encounter each other once again later in, in their lives. I think it's kind of cool that you know King sets this up in a flashback of Roland's in book four and later decided that I'm going to make it the same guy who was in book one Yep, and make sure that, that, that it all kind of wraps around on itself which is nice yep it appeals to the science fiction fan in me <laughs> yes so i found the characters of the big coffin hunters just probably because they have such an evocative name um mm-hmm. and they seem to be being set up to be there's three of them there's three people in roland's quartet it seems destined that there, there's going to be a run-in potentially with them um what's interesting about it is that Jonas, the head of the of the big coffin hunters, the biggest of the coffin hunters, yes, is a failed gunslinger. That it was Court, in fact, who defeated him, and he was exiled. And, it was and, and Court's sent, father. Oh, I'm sorry, Court's father. Yes, who 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 defeated him in the in the in the final battle there, and he was exiled and sent out of Gilead. And it made me think that maybe the way that Gilead uses their gunslingers might not be the most forward thinking way. And in fact, like we're going to train you, we're going to show you all the skills you need. And then if you fail, we're going to kick you out. You're going to be exiled for life. Um, I would imagine that that's not going to leave a lot of happy failed gunslingers. Um, It seems like, Hey, you've trained them with all these skills. What do you expect them to do? Except find a gun somewhere and become a mercenary of some sort. Mm -hmm. Exactly. (laughs) It, It really doesn't make sense. Uh, I mean, you bring this person to the peak of training and they they are a gunslinger in all but name, all but official title, right? And then they fail the last test. That last test is not, it's not like five more years of training after that. It's no, the, you just walk away, you're done. Yep. So he is, he, and it's good that King does this. Uh, it's pretty clear, as you said, there's a parallel here of three versus three. 
we know how formidable Roland is, and we can assume that his two almost gunslinger comrades are equally so. So we need to give them a challenge that is believable and has some weight to it. If Roland's biggest adversary were the the mayor, there'd right. be no drama here. So we need somebody who could actually, you know, cause Roland some distress. And by giving him a gunslinger, but the bad guy version of a gunslinger, because he was sent west in exile and has a, a limp because Court's father broke his leg as he defeated him in that final test. Yep. I think that's a, a really nice construct. I'm just glad we don't do that type of stuff in America that, you know, we, we, we train somebody for five years to become like a Navy SEAL. Navy SEAL. A Navy yeah. SEAL Team 6. And then if they happen to not pass the final exam, we're like, okay, tough. You're out of America. Go somewhere else because nothing bad could happen there, right? Uh, the other interesting thing about Jonas is that he lets loose that he's used magic doors to get to other worlds. It's like, whoa. Yeah. Like, just commonplace for everybody? Does everybody got a magic door on a beach that they can get through to get to other worlds? That's pretty nifty. And it's connected to him being like, uh, from, like, he's a, his religion is, he's a Manny. Yes. And we've heard Roland mention this and like the, the, the Manny folk by the edge of the desert in book one and stuff like that. So, um, apparently that's, uh, Jonah follows them and claims that his connection to that faith is what lets him travel through these mystical doors. Yeah. His, his buddy of the, in the big coffin hunters isn't so sure on how all that works exactly. And is not mm-hmm. sure what to believe, but, uh, a, a very interesting, uh, piece it, you know, because it does seem very, Roland doesn't seem to know that there's other worlds until Jake tells him so. And until he finds these magic doors. Um, yeah. So to find out that there's another person who is a gunslinger who, or a f- failed gunslinger, who's like, yeah, I can do that too. It's makes you wonder how much of this there is in the world and mm. what the consequences of him knowing that are. I wonder if he needs to like dial 1919 in a keypad somewhere to make <laughs> his magic many doors open. We are not speaking of this ever again. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Let me tell you about a movie called Highlander 2 that I saw. Ah, uh-huh. now that I'm okay with. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, there were a, a lot of great lines in this book, and I think that, um, or in this section of the book so far, and I think that book four overall has been a really nice return to form for King in the style of his writing. I haven't been disappointed by his writing at all, like in books two and three. But I w- was constantly impressed by his writing in book one. Mm. It was much more poetic. He was constantly turning phrases that I was just like floored by the symbolism that he packed into into his, his lines. And I felt that that was missing quite a bit in books two and three. And books two and three, I think you pointed out, were much more like the other books that he was writing in the late 70s. and and early 80s or maybe mid 80s to late 80s yes that they were much more workmanlike like the stories were pumping and the the characters were great and they were really fun and exciting things happening and that's all well and good and that's one of the things that makes king so appealing but i think the quality of his writing like he wasn't putting as much of maybe his his poetic self into his language and I think he's he did that a little bit more in this book. 
So I found a couple of lines just in this section um, that we're covering in this episode. Um, like when Susan caught a glimpse of Rhea gazing into the pink glass ball, it made Rhea look like she uh, was a young girl again. And, and the line was, for one moment, it was the face of a young girl, but one filled with cruelty as well as youth. The face of a self-willed child determined to learn all the wrong things for all the wrong reasons. Mm. I just thought that was a wonderful line. And it also carries forward this fun idea that it seems that by reversing Rhea's old age, by giving her, by maybe returning to her to her appearance when she was maybe Susan's age, that we can more clearly read her expressions and know her true intent. So Rhea is full of cruelty and full of wrong ideas and wants to do those wrong things for the wrong reasons. And it's even more apparent when she doesn't have sort of the mask of, of the ancient face that she wears mm, yep. in real life. Um, so I thought that was a, a nice extra layer. And all that is there because of King's wonderful construction of the, that sentence. Um, another one uh, was when uh, King was describing the, the thinny. Um, he described the sound of the thinny as the warble of a siren being turned by a man without much longer to live. Ooh. I thought that was really spooky. And it made me just think of like this zombie running the, the siren and it's just like, <laughs> brains. Um, and also it was as if some sick part of the night had gained a voice and was trying to sing. So it's a sick part of the night and it was still trying. Yeah. Like it was failing, but it was still <laughs> a tempting song. So he's he's working some magic with these words. So the thinny is what really brings this story to the forefront, we think, right? The fact yes. that Roland is imagining sees the thinny and Topeka and that's what brings back these memories of the thinny here with and brings back the memories of Susan as well. Um mm -hmm. I, I wonder if he'll use the bullet trick here in uh Mayhus with uh, to put in his ears to fight back the the sounds of the thinny. I'll be hmm. interested to see if that's where Maybe he learned this is the trick. Where, yeah, where where he learned the trick, yeah. right? Could be. We'll see. Um, yeah, and, and it's interesting too because we know that the thinny is this sort of in between place between worlds. Mm -hmm. So again, Roland doesn't seem to know about the other worlds at this point. So I wonder what purpose, if any, the thinny has here. No one else seems to think of it that way, other than just sort of this weird place that can do harm to the cattle the cattle and, and other things and they do these fires to make sure that it it doesn't quite harm the town as much because the smoke seems to interfere with it so uh there there's a lot of interesting ideas that are being thrown in this very packed section that it'll be interesting to see how they play out in the next uh, few chapters mm. more fun stuff for you jay yeah um we get our description of Jonas and his appearance, we're told that he has a mustache, like this big bushy mustache. And it's described to us as a like a faux gunslinger mustache. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, leads me to the question of if if there's a, an expectation of a specific style of mustache that is the so-called gunslinger mustache, <laughs> does that mean that all gunslingers have a mustache and they wear it this way. And does that mean 
why doesn't Roland have a mustache? <laughs> so like suddenly all these questions came to mind, like gunslingers, mustache, Roland. I've never pictured him with a mustache. I don't think he's ever been described as such. No. And I don't think he's ever been like drawn in any of the artwork in the books with or the mustache. comics no. with a mustache. No. I was just going to mention that Idris Elba didn't have a mustache, but you don't want to talk about that. So <laughs> He had he kind of had a tea, right? Like a goatee beard type of thing. Yeah. He was very scruffy, yes. Yeah, um, but I, I believe that Roland's father is always shown with the mustache, at least in the comic books from my recollection. Yeah, of that. I think you're right. So maybe Roland never grew up in or had a chance to grow up and grow his gunslinger mustache and he was always you know, yeah. if anyone maybe wants he can't. To, Yeah, maybe he can't. If anyone wants to create a Venn diagram of gunslingers and mustaches and where the intersection is, uh We'd be happy to see that and post it on the website. Yes, please uh, create those Venn diagrams or any other mustache-related gunslinger artwork <laughs> you might think of. Send it our way. Or if you're some sort of math person and want to do some sort of proof, not all men have mustaches, all gunslingers have mustaches, all mustaches must be gunslingers, or all gunslingers. Some proof of some sort with those analogies. Uh, mustache game theory. <laughs> we're, we're, we're interested in all that. <laughs> Which type of mustache helps you aim the best? Oh, I aim with my mustache, not with my eye. <laughs> he, he who doesn't aim with his mustache has forgotten his the, the mustache of his father. <laughs> I do not shave my mustache. Those who shave their mustaches have forgotten the face of their father. Their mustached face of their father. <laughs> Of course, the problem with talking about all these mustaches and gunslingers is now I'm going to picture every gunslinger as looking like uh, Lieutenant Dangle on Reno 911. <laughs> <laughs> they all have cheesy 70s mustaches. Or the sabotage video. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I like that. Oh, one other thing. Um, when Roland was talking to the rancher Renfew and he was explaining what, you know, the the typical trade was and he said like yeah most of the people are farmers that grow corn and beans but we're all, we are on the the sea here and so we have a lot of fish too and he started talking about how the the fishing trade is not what it used to be <laughs> and that made me start thinking of billy joel's song the down easter alexa and uh, there's that you know the line in it that says they say these waters aren't what they used to be but I've got people back on land who count on me. So, like these waters, it's not what it used to be. <laughs> not what it used to be. So we've gone from Velcro Fly and uh, ZZ Top to Down Easter Alexa and Billy Joel. That's right. There you go. Big step up, in my opinion. <laughs> All right. Well, we covered quite a lot in these five chapters, and our next section of reading is going to be fairly long. We've got about 120 pages in my trade paperback, so um, we will want to see where all this happens. I mean, we didn't even talk about what is that glowing orb that Rhea has, you know, what's happening with the the big coffin hunters, and, and what does that actually mean? Um, are, are Susan and Roland actually going to fall in love? There's just a lot going on, Jay, and there's five more chapters in this section that we're going to tackle next time. 
I'm not sure I could handle the suspense. You <laughs> built it up so much. Well, luckily, you don't have to wait six years between that and this. So Very true. Join us again in two weeks as we bring you another exciting episode. So that's going to be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. And Jay, we've had a couple people write recently, and we thank you for the good interactions. Um, people are, are reaching out, and we always enjoy that interaction. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower. And our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. Go there for polls and comments and exciting updates on bonus episodes. And if you like this show, please rate us on iTunes. We had another review in the last couple of weeks, and we Woo! thank you for that review because that's what helped us find new audience members and gets the word out about this podcast. So thank you very much for that. Next episode, join us as we cover book four of The Dark Tower, Wizard in Glass, part two, Susan, chapter six through 10. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening. Yeah, 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 yo.